Welcome to another episode of Just Another Bozo in the Bus. I'm Paul Randack. I'm your host. Um, today, I'm happy and excited to welcome Shannon Egan with us, author and recovery advocate. Um, just a quick reminder, we next week I have Michaeli Mathis on the program, and uh, she's going to be talking about growing up in a household... Well, maybe she will. Actually, I don't know. Who knows what she'll end up talking about. But um, she grew up in a household with parents that were um, struggling with uh, addictions. Um, and one of those children that learns the, the art or the role of parentification, um, where she takes on that role, helping raise her siblings. Um, and then the week after that, we I have the Bozo Roundtable with the providers, and that includes Robert Simpson. Corey Markovich and oh my gosh, who else? Oh, and Brett Heiner will be on. And I look forward to that on December 1st, I think. All right. I want to welcome all our fellow bozos out there and especially want to welcome Shannon. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for being here, Shannon. And Shannon's the author of a book, and I was going to mix it up with something by Anthony Bourdain. So, would you, what is No it? Tourists Allowed. No Tourists Allowed, yes. which is. Uh, and a, a beautiful story of um, her life uh, through addiction, but also through her struggles uh, growing up in the LDS and Salt Lake community, I guess, a little bit. Yes. Anyway, where, where would you like to start today? Where, what, what, uh, where would you like to start with your story? Shana? Well, first, I want to say I really love the title of your podcast. And when I was thinking about it, I was chuckling all the way over here because it's, <laughs> it's so fun. And it's a reminder that we are all the same. We're just another bozo on the bus. We're all here. We all have um, similar struggles. And um, how fun is it to be think of yourself as you know a bozo it kind of takes the seriousness out of out of situation so i really love it and how important it is to be able to laugh at ourselves right exactly and that seems to be one of the things that we struggle a lot in life is being able to do that i i know for i should speak for myself of course that quite often i take myself a little too seriously yes i i love that reminder and that's actually a lot of the um it's kind of the message so I use Instagram as a platform um, to promote creativity and recovery and specifically laughing in recovery so I create um, sort of these videos um, that have a comical theme to them Um, because I see so so many of our uh, recovery advocates are online telling their stories and it's like here's my before photo Uh of me and my addiction and here's my after photo and you know, it's all very similar, and we need more innovative content out there. And let's remember to laugh, and let's remember to have fun, and not take yeah. things so seriously. Yeah. So, so important. Yeah, so important. I think I've, I've seen some of your videos on Facebook. Now that I think of it, oh, have you? Yeah. And have you? I, 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 I do. They, they always. I mean, I, I definitely enjoy them. First of all, and I always laugh, and I go, I gosh, I appreciate her sense of humor. Oh, there was good. the one out in the field. I don't know if you had a bat or what you. Oh, uh, a. Like a lightsaber or something like that, right? Yes, you were yes. I had a lightsaber in one and a bat in one, <laughs> and that, and so it's like re, it's creating a moment where um, recovery expectations versus reality. And here I am, everything's fine in the first scene, and then in the second scene, and they're like twelve second clips is all. You know, the uh, I'm sitting on a box, it breaks, and I get out a bat and start whacking it, or you know, just little scenes that. Um, People go, what the heck is this? This is random. But at the same time, it's lighthearted and fun, and they hopefully leave watching that 12 seconds clip yeah. with a smile. So, yeah. 
Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And they do work. So I'm just giving you feedback oh, right thank now. Thank you. I they appreciate work. that. I yeah. appreciate that yeah. so much. So. All right. Yeah. So I guess we could dive in. Um, I'll talk about a little bit about my addiction recovery journey. So I grew up in um, a very strict religious um, Mormon family here in Utah. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, um, I will say community, actually, because, you know, the whole community played a role in this. And um, just kind of um, the message in our household was the church is true. There's only one pathway to spirituality and God and mm-hmm. heaven. And and if you don't follow this path, that um, you're, if you don't believe in this path like mm-hmm. we do, then um, there's something wrong with you. You have a mental illness or maybe the devil has a hold of your spirit or all of these types of things that are common messages that children growing up in the Mormon community in Utah mm-hmm. um, experience. And um, for well, me, I, go ahead. I was just going to say, which was one of the foundations of shame is feeling, I mean, especially with younger children that don't understand that if they think something or believe something differently, they they don't don't understand the concept of not, of of something's wrong with them because of that, which then leads into the the early dynamics of shame. Exactly. And I love, I I think that was so key for me because I I felt it, but I didn't understand what was going on. Um, because you're so young and you can't really, you don't have the development yet to be able to say, okay, I'm experiencing shame. All you know is the way that you feel and you feel that you're not good enough or there's something wrong with you. Um, I, I listened to a podcast or it, I can't remember the guy's name, but he's amazing and I'm sorry so that I can't <laughs> reference it. But he explained when you're growing up and I would call the Mormon community here sort of cult-like in the way that they go about um, preaching the religion that it's the only pathway right. and it's very dangerous and how it's run and um, he said that it can be very similar that if um, you're sitting at a table as a child with your mom and your dad and there's no apple on the table but they say hey we see the apple on the table do you mm-hmm. see the apple and you're like no I don't you're a kid and you're like there's no apple I'm not <laughs> blind and then they get all your siblings in and the siblings say hey we see the apple do you see it now right. and they're like no I don't and then they get your Sunday school teachers and your you know your neighbors and your community mm-hmm. and everybody shouting we see the apple and then you become convinced something's wrong with you yeah. even though there is no apple. So that was my experience. And then uh, by the time I was 15, I ended up turning on myself because I really believed something was wrong with me. I really believed that Satan had a hold of my spirit. I, um, And that's a really scary thing. And I started using drugs and alcohol as a way of dealing with the way that I felt about myself. The- Do you think that you felt something was wrong with you at that time? Um, was it predicated primarily on that you didn't have the same experience of the church as your your family did? Was that the basis of all this, or were there other things as well? <clears throat> I'm going to open up a LaCroix. I just realized I didn't before we started. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, I Yeah, I, w- I would feel that, I would say that that was um, most of um, it. And there were other things going on in the house that I'd rather not talk about just to protect my family. Sure. But um, there, um, for me, so it was kind of like you've got to read the scriptures. You've got to, um, when you read the scriptures, you'll feel the spirit. And um, when I was reading it, I just thought this stuff is just so disturbing. 
the Bible in the Book of Mormon, mm-hmm. it's all bloodshed and thou shalt not and blah, blah, blah. And I'm fire like, and brimstone. Fire and brimstone. And I did not relate to any of it. I'm sure. like, I felt that I was, um, I just, the whole experience was disturbing to me. And um, I'd even tried at one point, my family, I, I got my first DUI when I was 21. I started drinking and getting high at 15 and then my first DUI at 21. And my parents were like... Um, they were like, well, ha- you, the reason why you're not finding this to be true or feeling it like we do is because you're not doing it right. So um, I'm like, well, they're like, you know, you're always breaking the rules or they would be so strict where it's like you couldn't have drink Coca-Cola. And mm-hmm. so I thought, OK, well, what I'm going to do so that I have peace, I have inner peace mm-hmm. with this mm-hmm. struggle is I'm going to commit to the church for a full year. So no Coca-Cola, no masturbation, no whatever mm-hmm. it means to be a um, upstanding church member. Mm-hmm. I read my scriptures um, almost every single night I, I did Sunday school and you know everything that you're supposed to do and then at the end of the year I went to see my bishop and he was like hey I'm so proud of you you've done so well um, now you can take out your endowments and our goal was for me to go on a mission at the end of this year if I had you know because then by then I would have been forgiven of all my past sins sure. and I could go to the temple and I my dream as a kid was to travel the world I wanted to travel I felt more connected to that dream than I felt connected to reading the Book of Mormon mm-hmm. and my bishop suggested okay well we'll go um, we'll when you you know commit to the full year and if you're you complete it okay then we'll get you on a mission and then you can travel and, and you know complete that dream and also be in the church and then um, so at the end of the year I went to see my bishop he was proud of me and I walked out and realized I don't feel any better then, then you know, you expect, okay, well, this church is supposed to, you know, you're cl- closer to God and all this, and you're supposed to feel so amazing. And I just felt more disconnected from mm-hmm. myself than ever. And I was able to walk away from that going, I know this isn't for me, and I know it's not true for me. Okay. And, and it's time to seek something else. You, you put yourself, um, immersed yourself into the goal of living by what's considered, right, the... Um, yeah, I can't remember even the word for it. I'm so sorry. Um, but the 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 attendance of the church, I'll do that for a year. The year ended. You went and talked to your bishop. We're ready to go. You were so proud of you. You you get the validation that you you did follow um, the tenets of the church. And, oh, the word of wisdom. Yeah, there we go. You followed the word of wisdom, and and so. But afterwards, when you actually checked in with yourself, and you realized. This is not for me. I can do it, but it's 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 not true. Yeah. So I yeah. wondered if you felt at all that there was, especially. I mean, I love the the apple analogy that you used, Shannon, because that's sort of the, the gaslighting approach, right? Mm. That which often happens in a cult type atmosphere, um, where everyone wants you to believe the same thing they do, because there's almost a fear of acknowledging uh, of wanting never actually never wanting to acknowledge that my belief could possibly not be true and that it's when any time a belief needs to be absolute and has to apply to everyone then the the basic of ir- the irrational thinking around that in its own self is about proving that that belief system can't be true it can't be whole um, because it can't apply to everyone. There's there's nothing universal as far as belief systems that 
can just be applied and fixed to every single human being. And so gaslighting then takes place Hmm. where the other people try to, you know, bring us in to think that we're supposed to see the world through a certain paradigm. And if we don't, then something's wrong with us, which then there's where the shame comes from. Yes. And I love that you said that because I I think that the previous generations, it was um, important for everybody to believe in the same thing. Mm -hmm. And that's how they made sense of the world. And that's why religion ruled and and politics in the way it used to ruled and there wasn't a lot of questioning and there was just you know following along with these certain structures um but we're living in a new world today where people are saying no we will not be um we will not conform Mm -hmm. we will honor our truth Mm -hmm. and we will speak it from the rooftops no matter what the persecution looks like Mm -hmm. and so um i totally believe that i believe well i believe that not all beliefs work for everybody. Right. There's no universal belief um, that we need to follow in order to get to heaven. Right. I don't know if we should be saying that because that's it seems it's a controversial topic for sure. But which part are you referring to? This controversial. I, mean, um, I, I think that there's still a lot of people out there who want to say that we have the truth and that in order for you guys to, you know, be with God in the afterlife mm-hmm. when it comes to religion, you need to follow along these lines. Or mm-hmm. I'm going to use AA as an example. Um, so part of my recovery journey has been um, I've used creativity as my pathway to recovery mm-hmm. or pathway to healing and, and um, well-being. Mm-hmm. And that's included cosplay, which is an evidence-based wellness practice, writing. I've been a professional writer by trade since 20- 2004, and journaling and writing have, have helped me to heal and understand my journey better. So um, a lot of different creative practices I've used, but when I first came into the recovery community, I had two years sober, and I started working at USERA, which is a recovery community mm-hmm. organization here in Utah. And um, people just did not get me. They were like, what do you mean creativity is your recovery path? <laughs> what do you mean you didn't do the 12 steps? And that's been my journey even up until today. I've done other podcasts and I did it with one guy who was a devout 12-step member. And he was just like, I, I just don't get it. What do you mean you haven't done the 12 <laughs> steps? And we're in 2018, yes, man. I it's know, like, I know. you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the, I think the beauty of recovery, no matter what a person is, is recovering from, is the ability to find their path. And if you, I mean, this term program, gosh, we talked about this last week, whatever the program is, but I, I look at it more as a path. Creative expression is one of the most powerful things. And being someone who's run treatment centers, um, using creative expression and, and art therapy and all those, um, you know, experiential, ha- having experiential creative experiences is is a basis of a lot of people becoming connected to themselves I, I, and often nature, too. So I'm uh, I'm a, I'm an advocate for the whole creative wellness piece. And I um, I think the idea or the notion that, again, maybe like a, a theology, there's one way to go. Um, a, a purist, you know, 12-step purists um, may feel offended at times because not everyone agrees with them. And not everyone even thinks addiction is a disease, you know, either. So um, 
it's one of those it's one of it's such a personal aspect to personal growth and development to be able to step into whatever that empowerment place is within us you know it's it to be authentic it probably also needs to be eclectic at some level where we're able to be you know find that truth and it doesn't necessarily actually i won't even say that it it needs to be ours whatever it is I like that. It's about making, um, creating a safe space for people to to um, heal and recover uh, and find satisfaction in life in their own way. Yeah. As long as it's not harming someone else, it's you know, it's it's not about us. It's not about me. And or and I, I just want to say, I mean, I I think it's interesting. The purists in AA is what you. Re- called them um i think i understand it's worked for them so well that they they want to give it to others but i also think that when there's a hardcore defense against some against somebody else's idea that maybe there's not security within their current approach Mm -hmm. because they're feeling threatened sure right um and the thing the thing that i've struggled with aa is that it's it for me, when I got my second DUI, so I have three DUIs. I'm a felon. Um, actually, my felony has been reduced to a misdemeanor. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, but um, so going back to AA um, and this idea that maybe there are multiple pathways. For me, I was triggered very much by um, when I got my second DUI, I was court ordered to attend AA the AA 12 step group. And I said to the judge, I said, please, can I self direct? Can I please have individual counseling for me? I was very traumatized by what I experienced growing up Mormon. And whenever I went to an AA, um, meeting, I was, I was reminded of that trauma and Mm -hmm. how I felt that I couldn't have a voice and I had to follow somebody else's rules and they had all the answers and it was all about my higher power and I had no, you know, personal power and it triggered all of those uh, bad memories. And uh, the judge said, no, of course you can't self-direct. You're an (laughs) addict. Um, And what do you know? (laughs) Exactly. And um, so, yeah, I, I just, um, so that was kind of a common theme where I was being told I needed this is the only pathway and or in the court system it's a free support system and that's the, really the only resource sure. they have. Yeah. Um um so but when I and I I find that a lot of people in the 12 step community um like in the in any religious community now are seeking other forms of health and well-being um because there, we need multiple ways to see things, and maybe one pathway works for us in a moment, and then we grow and mm-hmm. evolve, and we try, we find something new that enhances us for sure. that time. Become a different version of ourselves. I, I love this concept of, you know, <laughs> at some point, you know, I, I became uh, two point one and two point two and two point three, and I don't ever want to go back to those earlier versions of myself because each of them has been predicated on developing a new version of myself and why and why go back and use something that I did back then necessarily instead of learning to adapt to something new today and be able to use new tools um I, and and that's probably why there's been an influx of of 
um, new type of systems that have come in over over the years uh, just because of the pushback from that. And I mean, the correlation between um, something like AA and um, different uh, staunch views about theology or dogma of any kind um, creates this sense of people wanting to explore and want, wanting more freedom, which I believe is the nature of sobriety in the first place is freedom. So being able to explore that and figure out a way to do it. I, I get the pressure that often comes and, and for the courts, you know, the, the judicial the judicial system that would speak from a place of you don't know yet. You know, you don't know what you need because you're an addict. I mean, that whole labeling process is pretty toxic in itself. Not that their intention maybe isn't to help somebody, but it does not allow someone to learn to gain their own voice and begin to trust themselves again. Not everyone that's that wants to advocate for themselves is doing it for the sole purpose of wanting to, you know, um, figure out a way to slide by through the system. Right. Yeah. Right. And and I it's it's a complicated situation like you said not everybody believes addiction is a disease and there's we're all entitled to our own opinion and and how can we make it safe for one another to have our own opinions without um lashing out. Um because it it's okay it's okay to have somebody who says, you know, there's the big debate uh of over mat services, um medicated yeah, assisted uh, treatment. Yeah, yes. Right, right. And is that really um supporting or enabling people and um, I think it's good I think it's good to have a different opinion it's not about everybody agreeing it's about learning to be tolerant and kind Mm -hmm. and say it's okay that you think differently than me we can still be friends yes yeah so that is the importance of of developing more of an open accepting community and and you know I have always thought I mean, personally, I should say, I've always felt and thought that the 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 notion or the idea behind twelve step, the fellowship, was a beautiful concept. This idea of creating community as a support system. It's when it becomes the dogma becomes more important than the community itself, and when mm. and people believe that, and then the idea is that people have to believe and look at it a certain way to be true to it. Is where the problem sinks in, and that, that's in any anything in life, you know, not just religion and and uh, recovery dogma. Yes, I love that, and I um, so there's a great film uh, by um, Greg Williams, who's now the I believe the co-founder or founder of um, Facing Addiction, one the largest national recovery organization in the U.S. And um, so he wrote this film called The Anonymous People, which is available yeah. on Netflix, yeah. which I love. Um, I, I think so highly of Greg and the work he's done. But what he did in that film was he showed the the positive, uh, the benefits of um, the 12-step community and all the work they've mm-hmm. done to help us get to where we are today. Um, so the fact that I get to be a recovery advocate and speak about creativity and recovery at mm-hmm. national conferences and um, multiple pathways to recovery is really because of what a the 12-step community has given us, which is really about peer support, yeah. is about taking our lived experience and being able to say, I understand 
where you are and I want you to know that you're going to be okay that you can recover you can rebuild and you can repair and how do I know that because I've been there because I understand Mm -hmm. and I have some tools and let me help you give you some tools or at least show you how you can find tools that that work best for you Hmm. so that really is what AA is all about you know with before the dogma gets all in there and and um you know i think one thing though that can be approved upon within the community that is so important is codependency mm-hmm. that's the issue i have i've always been so independent it's something i feel that i've been blessed with mm-hmm. i was able to go to africa in my early 20s and end up um, writing for the United Nations there and, and living on my own in, in a war-torn country and feeling that I have personal power and I mm-hmm. wasn't codependent on somebody else to make my dreams come through true. And then be, I was able to go to New York from there and write for the United Nations um, in the Daily News building and get mm-hmm. more training. And mm-hmm. I believe that's because I have personal power. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I see within the 12-step community or any community that we we create um, messages that take away people's ability to grow as individuals and we make them codependent on us. And there's too many teachings out there. Like one thing I, I disagree on with religion and, and AA and um, these types of structures is this idea that we're codependent on one another to get through. And mm. I just, for me, my journey has been within and it's been, I don't know if it's a higher power. Certainly people have helped me along the way, but I, c- I can do it without them too. Yeah. I have my own meditative practice, my own creative wellness mm-hmm. practices and things mm-hmm. like that. Well, I, I think that's a, a, a beautiful explanation of um, becoming self-actualized in, in recovery too. Is the, that we the, the sense or of being of being personally empowered? Um, that's what mindfulness to me is all about. Actually, is that idea that I I can do these things on my own, and I don't have to seek external validation or be told by someone else that everything's okay. Yeah, I may I may fall into that trap sometimes, but that's only when I'm not I'm not feeling that I'm I'm capable of doing something. Again, this story I tell myself, which may be not which maybe have no truth to it, but it's one I've told for so long I may believe it. Um, those old patterns. I I have a lot of colleagues, by the way, that don't like the word codependency. And I, I, I don't know what, I mean, I understand the, the, the problem that they have with it, but I think it's such an appropriate word. And for, when it becomes, when we look at relational dynamics, that um, when, I mean, this idea of enmeshment and the need for validation um, and and seeking that within a personal narrative often becomes so toxic that I'm not going to be okay unless someone else tells me I am. Or I'm conforming to someone else's rules that tells me I'm going to be okay if I do that. Which takes me back right to that story of when you, when you completed your year of uh, living peacefully. <laughs> Thinking of the analogy of living a year living dangerously, this this that you lived within this structure in this system, and you came out the other side saying, "Guess what? This isn't for me." Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Really beautiful. Ah, thank you. <laughs> well, I I I think you know I it's it's heartbreaking because we see so many um, stories of people who don't win the fight against you know their drug mm-hmm. and alcohol addiction, and. Um, 
you know, it's, it's important that we band together as a community, um, and just make, I keep saying it, make it safe for one another to, to have our, we need to nurture one another's perception and, and belief system and say, Hey, I don't necessarily agree, but this is, if, if yoga is your pathway to recovery, if that's what you connect to, and that's what brings you peace Uh and joy. And then, then let me connect you to a resource that I know about. And, uh, you know, whatever it is that helps people, um, along their journey in a more empowered way. That's that's, that's a beautiful example of that. Um, and, I guess the aspect too of this is um, realizing that that people are going to find their way in some in some form or another. Um, if, uh, as you did, as I did, as you know, millions and millions of people before us did, um, and do it in such a way that becomes authentic and true, and and what that looks like for one, as we say may look very different for someone else but ultimately the I, the ability to come together as a community i, I love the i love aftercare I've, i i love the the concept of aftercare when people just get together once a week and support each other they check in if they have issues they have problems they come in they talk about them um there's no the the judgment is people do their best to pull the judgment out of it especially depending on what that person's program looks like but there is always a struggle sometimes to find that even even in the most open communities it's so easy to get lost in one's own ideas and dogma and it becomes really subjective at that point um but i i still love what what aftercare does I, i see that as a community too um I was curious um, when you were talking about uh, what happened w- with the judges when you went before them and you asked them not to do AA. What was the outcome of that? Did uh, did they still make you go and have the things signed off? And <laughs> they what? did, they did, and um, <clears throat> so and the result was that was I tried to go to a few meetings and um i just i was so far gone in my addiction at that point that to try to find recovery even with um this um you know being in the criminal justice system i i ended up um forging signatures saying that i had gone to meetings cuz i literally could not even go without being wasted it was such a a wound for me and those meetings just triggered it and flared it up and i'm I'm like I'm never going to get sober if I'm forced to go to this um this it's it's for spirituality it's mm-hmm. for, you know cuz it's in in the religion or I'm sorry in the 12 <laughs> steps they're always talking about you know you need your higher power and I couldn't have a higher power at that point mm-hmm. cuz higher power or the word god was a trigger and I'm since you know I've done a lot of healing around mm-hmm. it and I don't feel the same way but back then when I hadn't worked on my my past traumas or my childhood I was just I mean I was just raw and wounded and lashing out mm-hmm. and um i was just like you know screw these aars i'm like you know but i mean i definitely don't feel that way now so but yeah and then after that i got my third dui and ended up i crashed a car and ended up in jail and my lawyer said shannon you're looking at probably a year in jail and you need to buck up and that's that rock bottom mm-hmm. uh, years later was when i started my recovery journey okay Okay. 
So what was what was going through your mind when you, when your lawyer said you got you're going to looking at a year in jail? Oh man, that was just it was truly devastating because I had been I had been traveling the world. I had been writing for the UN in Sudan as a freelancer, um, but they had sent me to Kenya and I got to go to Darfur and I uh, and just you know it I was living my dream because um, thoughtful writing is always something that. I had felt compelled to do, which is why I wrote my first book and I'm working on my second. Um, and then I had gone to New York and was able to cover um, humanitarian issues for the UN Population Fund. And I just, I was doing work that was truly meaningful. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden, I, I mean, also while struggling with addiction, um, but um, that was taken away from me. My freedom was taken away from me, which was a gift because uh, it was a wake-up call it was like okay so you've been traveling the world and doing all these cool things and um now you're you're losing everything i also had a book deal with um well i had an, a new york literary agent that was helping me to get a book deal mm -hmm. and um about my experiences in sudan and i lost everything so mm -hmm. it was um it was devastating to wake up in jail and just know that I had, I could not work on any other projects. I had to work on the self, and it felt like climbing out of this just ridiculous black hole. And I was never gonna, never gonna see the light again. Hmm. Wow. Wow. So I'm, I'm curious. This is a little bit off, but of the subject partly. But what, what were those? What was that time like in in Sudan? What what? What, what, do you, what do you remember? I mean, because I can only imagine the, somewhat of a culture shock, too, that kind of goes through when, especially growing up in, in somewhat of a culturally restricted area like Salt Lake, and then finding yourself immersed in something completely different. And I used to think that way just growing up in, in, in New England, <laughs> coming out west when I first came out west. Luckily, I'd spent some, I'd spent um, six months in Europe before I moved, I moved out here. So I felt like I had been around a, a little bit to get an idea idea of different culture but western culture is quite different than the culture in the northeast but what was that like going to sudan you know it was so interesting because i had chosen to go there right after i around the time it took me some time to figure out what i was going to do but after the whole one year in the church thing and the bishop and me leaving the church and being like nope this isn't working for me now. I gotta, I gotta figure out what I want to do with my life, and I knew I wanted to travel, and I'd always wanted to go to Africa. So, the reason why I chose Sudan was uh, Sudan was listed by Forbes magazine as the third most dangerous country in the world, and I just, I mean, I've always loved adventure, and I, I mean, I was so young then, I'm naive, I had no idea what I was doing, but I'm like, that's for me. But then I also chose Sudan because um, it is it. it so it's now two countries, since now it's North yeah. and South Sudan, but right. at the time it was governed by Sharia law, the strictest form of Islamic law, which right. meant that you couldn't drink there. Mm -hmm. um, there would be no alcohol sold, le you know, legally. And I thought I was... Well, you were restricted on your clothing, too, I'm going to guess, uh, you know. Yes, everything, yeah. everything. But I wanted um, to sober up. I wanted a chance to live out my dream and also sober up. Okay. So that's, I went there thinking, oh, no alcohol. This will be perfect for me. Mm -hmm. um, and when I got there, it was, it was a huge culture shock. It was like 120 degrees all year round. The heat was so overwhelming. But what I found was that it had so many similarities in 
the Mormon and Muslim church because of, you know, we have garments here in Utah uh-huh. where you can only wear, you know, you can't, your sleeves can't be too short or your skirt can't be too short. Sure. It's the same way over there. Very st- strict religious uh, or strict clothing policies. And, um, uh, the way they, the, you know, they, they have fasting rituals and just different things like that where I felt in a lot of ways right at home. I was like, oh, because my family was super strict and I felt like I was just back in a strict religion. Yeah. Okay. But I did a lot of healing there because I got to see um, the kids I got to know there would be like, you know, Miss Shannon, why why aren't you coming to Allah and we don't want you to burn in hellfire and damnation. And <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm like, oh yeah, I am right at home. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to heal a lot and see how the environment plays into our belief systems and what we see and perceive as truth. And mm-hmm. um, so it was so good for me. And then while I was there, I ended up just, you know, finding my way through the writing field the journalism field and um i mean it was just it was an epic adventure but it was i it was also devastating because i they um they had a coup attempt while i was there um and i got to go to darfur and write about the genocide and see kind of how the children and women were being raped and abused by the janjaweed and Mm -hmm. Um, the stories I was it, it just I became so depressed I would say my career was going so well when I was there I mm-hmm. had another um, option to stay a third year and I just I was so and I had relapsed there turned come to find out that alcohol's everywhere and you can buy it illegally and it's you know so I mean I was in just a, a mess when I got home right. so I mean similar to I mean it's similar to drugs other drugs like it is here you can always get something but there it's just not sold in the in the public in stores in the same way isn't that correct it's not in the public and in stores it's it's very interesting um how corrupt uh because religion rules the the land like it does (laughs) here um it's kind of like with the idea of you know everybody's i think we have about 70 percent of our population is baptized mormon in utah Mm -hmm. and it's um the only state that is um where the population is belongs to a single single church yeah um and so Sudan is very similar. Yeah. And um, so, you know, it's like, oh, we have the truth. We have the truth. But yet there's all these underlying issues where you see so many ex-Mormons and Mormons hiding out in these addiction recovery rooms, um, addicted to Prozac, addicted to whatever it may be, not able to function, even though they have the truth. It's the same in Sudan. It's it's such a de- there's a lot of depression. There's prostitution is insane i i wrote a story about um oh yes i i, I mean not just sorry your story but i, I met a, a man who's who um is working with young women and mothers over there and trying to find them other other work uh, so that they can get out of prostitution yeah um, and then yet yeah, it's 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 illegal so the the government leaders are um utilizing these prostitutes or whatever the right word is is they're paying them for sex and then um jailing them afterwards yeah right of course it's it's yeah. so wrong and i wrote so i wrote this story i was doing uh there's an orphanage there called my goma and um i was writing a story about how because of sharia law the women were being if if they had premarital sex they could be stoned to death mm-hmm. so 
they would be having sex and then get pregnant and they were dumping these babies into the dumpster and mm-hmm. then the mygoma orphan orphanage would go and take them and there were so many babies when i did the story and interviewed the the workers there they said the babies are dying of broken hearts because they don't have enough staff to hold them and cradle them and nurture them and um i mean so that's the kind of environment it was mm-hmm. where where nobody has a voice this idea of religion and allah rules everything and everybody it seemed like there was just so much depression but at the same time there's an uprising of the youth um kind of how we have an uprising here of of people <laughs> yeah. saying we're we're not okay with what's happening we're not okay with um circumcision of women over there because they Mm -hmm. do the female genital mutilation Mm -hmm. because they believe it protects them from being promiscuous right right um so just a lot of old practices um and superstition superstition yeah yeah Yeah. so very interesting yeah um uh pretty much um the whole idea of trying to control some this is this is uh, this this goes back thousands and thousands of years actually trying to control lust and sexual urges um believing that the source of it is is the genitalia which i mean there's truth of this but they kind of leave out the most important part which is the brain still because that's where it all starts so maybe some of the feelings and the sensation physically go away because of what they do to the the boys as well. I mean, we're you know castration was used with, with men for a long time as well in some cultures. It's it's horrific, um, you know, um, genital you know mutilation. What's going on with with the young girls now? Um, but it doesn't work. I mean, again, it's why I use the word superstition because it's it's just it's based in fantasy. It's based in something that's completely irrational because it starts. In the old noggin. Yes, yes. And and that's... Irrational beliefs, I think, are so dangerous. And Mm. and what are we passing down from generation to generation about irrational, strange beliefs? I remember my first time going um, into the temple and doing baptisms for the dead and feeling that that... Even though I couldn't put it into words as a 12-year-old girl, that that experience felt very irrational and bizarre to me. And, you know, like this idea that we're baptizing Jews and, you know, counting them as members in the church and these are raising the numbers. It's all, it's all of this nonsense, you know, like... (laughs) I don't know. It's just, it seems very harmful to me. Um, But yes, and to go back to your comment about um, sexuality and and kind of um, demonizing it and making people feel, um, you know, that that, that that's shameful and wrong. And um, when I was doing a story on the um, female genital mutilation there, it was fascinating to me because a lot of times I think men get um, blamed for for creating that experience and um, but when I I got to do a story I went into the field and I interviewed grandmothers and teachers and militia and Mm -hmm. um, all the men were like why would we want our women to be uh, you know sex is painful for them after this Mm -hmm. and um, come to find out that it was the grandmothers that were carrying on the tradition and they were the ones that were carrying that superstition in their hearts and really believing that it was important to slice uh, an eight-year-old or a you know a young girl and and just then completely sew her uh, sew her up and Mm -hmm. and they just have all these sorts of um health issues when they grow up and um so i thought that that was interesting 
that, that it actually gender wise it was the the uh, the women elders within the community that were perpetuating this myth. Yes, and the yeah. men felt that they had to believe in that to or they to save face with their their grandmothers. They sure. had to agree with it, but they were like, "No, we want." The, they were in the interviews saying, "We want this stopped. This yeah. is not and it's not enjoyable for our wife, and it's not enjoyable for us because they're in pain the whole yeah. time. You've cut their clitoris off. You've cut their is there labia? I'm not sure of what all these words are. Sorry, <laughs> but you're you're cutting it off and then slicing them open and then sewing them back together, and it's like. Like, for what? Yeah. The, the ultimate question, for what? And this goes back to something when we started talking about this, um, your experiences here in with the theology that you, you struggled with finding a place in. Um, but the, the idea that we must believe what we, we believe in, and if we don't, um, there's a problem. And most of that is based on some type of fear, right? That, that well, what if, what if I'm, what I think or believe isn't true? You know, it isn't absolute for everyone. That, that gets scary if you're, t- if, you know, for a lot of people. And uh, this whole notion that, um, that what I think and what I believe may not be true for someone else, if I'm taught that it's everyone's supposed to think and believe the same way, it kind of blows that all out of the water, the, uh, which then, again, just perpetuates a sense of fear. And instead of creating a sense, a sense of community and belonging, it, there's worry and dis- disenfranchisement often comes out of that. Um, fear is powerful stuff, and, and it drives people to do things completely irrational, um, based upon my own experience, of course. Um, some of the most irrational things I've done in my life are based upon moments where I've, I felt fearful or, or powerless or um, not, not able to, to choose. Uh, Yes, and I just want to say I think that that's it's profound when you think about fear and how it plays in why we believe what we believe, and when and I just I'm I want to be an advocate for um, religious against I, I'm I religious oppression is there's it's time to speak out against it, um, and so when you t- when you realize why why do people hold on to beliefs it is because of fear which means that their worth is wrapped up in those beliefs. And um, because when you say, okay, you've got to follow these certain rules in this life to get to the afterlife, Mm -hmm. and they're following those rules, and then if those weren't real, then they wouldn't know how to gauge their worth or, or their understanding of the world. And that's when the fear comes in. But I think what, what we need to do today is realize that we all have intrinsic value it, it it doesn't come from a belief system it doesn't it doesn't come from not drinking coca-cola today or or doing the 12 steps perfectly we have intrinsic value there is no belief in the world that's gonna that decides your worth for you and that's if we can find a way to just simply believe in that, mm-hmm. that I am valuable today, even if I get up and I'm frustrated at my rabbit for eating my house. I have a free roam rabbit who is currently eating at my house. And sometimes that's frustrating. And then I get mad because I'm frustrated. And I'm like, why are you you know, yelling at your rabbit? He's so cute. But it's... <laughs> I still have worth, and that's not, it, it doesn't have to do with any anything that I do or believe or the mistakes I make. And if we build our, our foundation on that, then 
if we find out that there is no God and there's really only this over here, then it doesn't matter because we're like, hey, I've already ha- felt valuable and I've already felt good about who right. I am. And yeah. now the truth is showing itself. And that's OK, because <laughs> I'm, you know, like it's I don't know. Does that make sense? <laughs> but I think you do know. You said I don't know, but I believe you do know. I do know, but I hope you I'm just, just explaining it. it well. Yeah. yeah. No, you, you. That was awesome. That was awesome. That we're when we talk about the term intrinsic value. Um, I, I also like the, you know the, the the idea or the concept of authentic self or um, you know my um, artistic self is I, I sometimes use that terminology but whatever that truth is for me and that whether there's 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 ethics and 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 morals and values associated with that understanding that intrinsically those are okay well, you know as long as I'm being uh, well, these are the, this is my terminology: um, vulnerable, um, accepting, um, and doing my best to work on my biases. <laughs> uh, then, and you know, and, and accepting of other people. Then, then uh, you know, I can create room for everyone else to have their experience as well. I may not like what everyone else does, but it doesn't mean that it's going to affect who I am and my value as a person. I, this kind of when I, th- I think of you know some maybe larger universal statements about this, I think of like Viktor Frankl and man's search for meaning and, and that kind of thing. Something the things that can't be taken away—that's the intrinsic stuff—is what I hear you kind of talking yes. about. That the, the stuff that's within us—that's that's not associated with anything external—and that that's where our, our true values and our, our 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 source, our intrinsic source of of being is. Yes, I love that. And I think the way I think it's hard. What I've discovered in my own personal journey is that it's really hard to know those things that are intrinsically that that have value to us and can't be taken away. But I've been able to find a way to tap into them more. And that's by focusing less on what I'm thinking and more on how I'm feeling. Um, A big part of my recovery journey or my life journey has been. Um, supported by um, visualization or mental imagery, which is used in sports psychology. And it's Mm -hmm. something that I um, use in my creativity and recovery workshops that I get to do is teaching people how to um, exercise the feeling good muscle. Um, Because we we try to make sense of everything that we're talking about um, Mm -hmm. value and religion and what's important and what's not important. And are we going to hell? And we we're thinking too much (laughs) and we're not feeling our way through. And I think that's why I was able to walk away from the church early on was Mm -hmm. because, or know that it wasn't working for me because I was very tapped into my emotions. I knew it didn't feel right for Mm -hmm. me. I wasn't feeling peace. Mm -hmm. I wasn't feeling elements of, of truth and freedom in the thoughts and then the ideas that I was being presented. And, um, so, so through mental imagery or visualization, um, it's kind of like this idea that you are imagining a, a something. So it's like with Michael Phelps, uh, the Olympic swimmer, he uses it to imagine that he and feel that he is winning his gold medal. Mm-hmm. So he feels the water moving through his arms and, 
reaching the other side and boom, boom, and everything is smooth and it's an emotional state, it's a physical state, it's a mental state that he gets into and he imagines the scenario happening again and again and then he imagines standing on the podium and winning the gold and mm-hmm. hearing the crowd chanting his mm-hmm. name. And and that's how he says he's gotten mm-hmm. to where he is today. And I've done, I've used a similar um, method where when I wanted to travel the world, I didn't know what that meant. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a freaking pirate. I thought I was going to be a pirate on a boat and I was going to sail the world and I was going to just be out there and like taking treasure. And, you know, as you grow up, you realize, oh, whoa, these these people are scallywags and that's not what I want to do. But I did know that I felt compelled to travel and explore. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. We just had a little crash of the photo. But I felt really compelled to travel and explore the world, and I wanted to tap into that. So what I did was I started tapping into the feeling that I felt the way that I felt when thinking about traveling. Mm-hmm. I felt very joyful. I felt very invigorated. I felt very passionate and alive and exuberant and um, excited and like, you know, intrigued and curious and all these wonderful feelings. And so I would um, do my visualization. I would first write down a scene that would help me feel the same way. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I would, you know, and then eventually I've used visualization and um, mental imagery um, to get me to Africa and to get me through Africa and a job writing for the United Nations and then back in New York. And it's and then when I was in my recovery process, what was interesting is when so the second DUI, the court said, you need to um, you need to go to AA. I forged the signatures. Um, the third DUI, my lawyer was a family friend, and he said, I said, Rick, don't tell me I have to go to AA as we're figuring out this process, because it's not going to work for me. I'm telling you, I will die if you force me into this this recovery support. I, I won't make it. Um, I was so depressed. I was so far gone. And he said, I, I understand. I grew, I have had issues with the Mormon church. I'm also in recovery from mm-hmm. alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And the 12 steps didn't work for me. So he said, when, when we go to court, I'll be an advocate for you to get individual counseling. Um, so while we were working on that whole sentencing and stuff like that, I, I turned to mental imagery as mm-hmm. my key recovery support. Because I was consumed by fear and panic that I was going to go to jail for a year I was going to lose everything and so I started trying to just get in a better feeling place how can I feel a little bit more relaxed right now instead of so fearful how can I try to tap into feelings of trust that everything was going to be okay and that was by writing out scenes of me even if it was just sitting at a beach and listening to the waves and just Mm -hmm. you know and then I would um, close my eyes I put my hand over my heart because that Mm -hmm. helps you when you're visualizing it helps you to remember that it's coming from a uh, your visualization should be coming from a heart space Mm -hmm. instead of a mind space and that it's about um using better feeling muscles right or or try it's like you know you're going to a gym and you're trying to strengthen your arms but when you're visualizing (laughs) you're trying to strengthen your better feeling muscles so that you're used to not being in a state of fear and it i feel like it worked for me 
Well, I think we were talking about this before we started, actually. the Maybe it was during the, the podcast. I apologize. I don't remember. But this idea of the difference between um, intellectual and emotional intelligence. And when we talk about um, the ability to be sensitive, or maybe sensitive is not the best word, but to be able to truly feel and allow ourselves to uh, experience feelings at a very deep vulnerable level and and create heart space for that um I, I, that to me is 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 what the ultimate you know ex- experience of self but also how i relate to e- everything else around me including <laughs> my own being <laughs> as well so this this notion or this idea that um learning to um listen listen to to and experience my feelings without judgment, but know that they lead often lead to a much better version of myself. I think becomes an, an inherent component of of you know life's journey, whatever that looks like for for anyone else. It's so easy to get lost in the head, you know, and and it's important. I mean, that, that I mean, it's, when it comes to visualization, I, I realize I've got to. I mean, I I, I practice this as well, so um, I'm I'm glad to hear you talk about this today, but. I know when I the, the visualization is is one part of it, but what makes it come alive in, in me, at least in my experience, is getting is experiencing the feelings and becoming immersed in those. Um, because then my senses seem to come alive, whether I start smelling like the beach or something like that, or feeling the sand on my feet, even though they're still in my shoes, you know that kind of thing, where it becomes real, and I become engaged in it, and that makes sense. I like the Michael Phelps story too for that purpose. I was going to ask you, I mean, <laughs> you know, how did you get how did you get through some of those times in in Sudan or Darfur where, you know, it you don't know what actually is could happen. I I mean, you know, it's the stranger in a strange land kind of scenario. Um and and you know, you know that how how did you find, see yourself getting through that but you just explained that you answered the question because you visualized yourself getting through those things and doing things it sounds like or maybe i misinterpreted that well you know i wish i could say so what was interesting about sudan was so i was super young when i went there i was about 24 25 and i was so so naive i'd never been outside of the us except like the border across to mexico for a brief moment but um, so I think I so I met up with my old roommate who was from New York and we talked a couple of years ago like holy crap can you believe we went through that because it was it was literally so intense and so shocking from day one like I, I it was so intense I mean we were living in the third most dangerous country in the world at mm-hmm. the time and the, so what happened was it was so intense it was like literally stepping out of the plane like you're getting on like a crazy roller coaster ride that you just could never get off and it was going so fast that you you couldn't even process it and i think that's why i when i left i was i didn't visualize when i was there okay I, okay. I i i was literally i felt like i was in a state of shock the entire time because when they offered me to stay another no. year um, to write for this magazine that was there, and I already had my freelance job, and I was doing really well and loving the work, I was just so mentally and physically and emotionally drained 
that I, I, I felt like I couldn't function anymore. It's like, it wasn't even an option for me mm. to be able to stay in Sudan anymore. I would have just like passed over on the ground and been like, see, ya, I'm out, you know, cause it was, <laughs> there was, um, so much turmoil going on and they had, um, a, uh, so there was a coup and then there was a, so what happened was they were trying to sign a peace agreement between the Muslims and the Christians. Mm-hmm. And they said, Hey, we're the, the Muslim, the Muslim government said, Hey, we're going to invite you guys to be in the government with us. Give us your p- most powerful leader and bring him here and we'll inaugurate him. And t- as I, the VIP. I actually remember this. Yeah. Yeah. And he, they, he mysteriously died in a plane crash on his way over to the inauguration. Of course, this, the Christians thought that the Muslims had murdered him and it just, there was bombings in Khartoum where I was living. Mm -hmm. And I mean, just to be a part of that and then not just to be a part of it, but to be working as a journalist Mm -hmm. and my editor from Air News saying, Shannon, Shannon, we need the story. Where's the story? And and I had been vacationing in Greece at the time that this was happening. And he was like, where's the story? And I'm like, what story? And I look online and I see what's going on. He's like, get back to Khartoum. And everybody else is fleeing. And I'm like, <laughs> He's trying you to, to go get back, back in. in. Right, yeah. But I was so young. And it's also in my, my first book, No Tourists Allowed, I kind of talk about how a lot of journalists are are addicted to that adrenaline because I wanted to go back in. I was like, bring me back in. I'm going to cover this and blah, blah, blah. And just felt invisible when you're so young. But also, um, it's an in- interesting topic because you have, you know, I was working with Reuters correspondents and BBC and UN TV and to hear they've been doing it for so long. And some guy had even covered the Rwandan genocide. And mm. They, I remember the UN telling us, "Hey, whatever you do, never get names and faces of people in Darfur because the the government right. will ha- order them right. to be killed." Right. And um, I would see these professionals from BBC or Reuters or whatever getting names and faces, and I'm like, I was so green, and I'm like, "Why are you doing that? They're going to be murdered." And they said, "Without a name and without a face, there is no story, mm-hmm. and without a story, we don't get funding to help these people." Right. So it was just, there was so much intensity of all that going on every day that I just, I soaked it all in. And then I was like, wow. And I went home with a lot of PTSD that I hadn't worked through and got heavily involved into prescription drugs and just, yeah. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Just taking a breath. (laughs) That's a lot, (laughs) yeah. That was was a lot. So... When, so the third DI in relationship to when you were over, you know, traveling around Darfur and and Sudan. This what what's the timetable as far? Yeah, as- it's we're kind of jumping around my story yeah. quite a bit, so I right. hope it doesn't confuse people. But so I um, I came back from Africa in t- two thousand and six, and then. Um, ended up getting a literary agent because the whole time I was in Africa I was working on a book about mm-hmm. you know what I was doing there um, got a literary agent in New York City ended up moving there I had a connection with um, a person from the UN and got a job in New York writing while I was there and um, ended up living there for a couple of years and that's I came back from Sudan um, with PTSD heavily involved into prescription uh, heavily addicted to prescription pills and um, then started um, drinking again heavily and um, got my 
second DUI in 2011, and then my third DUI, no, I'm sorry, my f- second DUI in 2009, I think, and my t- third one in 2011. So, um, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. It, it kind of. So, but you, did, you, did you get sober when you, start, when you stopped? Was this, was this all in, was this in New York, or was this out here when this all? When of- I got my final DUI, I was out here. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, and did you, you, I'm guessing something happened with your publisher, your agent or something? Yes, my yeah. agent at the time. So she was with me when I was living in New York and writing for the UN there. And she she was really kind and sweet and um, just knew that I was a mess because she would like call me on things and be like, you know, what's going on with you? And, you know, she her whole thing with me was like, you're... She believed in me as a writer. She believed in my story, but she was like, you keep writing this story like you're a reporter from the news. And I uh-huh. get the sense that you're not tapping into what you experienced. And she wanted to me, me to make the religious ties between the Mormon and mm-hmm. the Muslims and what I, what I had come to understand there mm-hmm. and how I had healed. And I hadn't been really doing any of that work yet. Um, and I was just like, "There's." she really wanted me to talk about the church and how it affected me growing up Mm -hmm. and why I fled to Africa and wanted to escape the Mormons. And I just wasn't in a space where I could do that and take on my family and my community. Mm -hmm. And so the whole, I was just downward spiraling. And she finally just said, Shannon, you're an alcoholic. You need to get therapy Mm -hmm. and you need to quit. You need to sober up. And Mm -hmm. I can't, we, you can't write this book right now. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the catalyst. And then I, um, for losing that contract and then um, losing the UN. And then I ended up stripping for a little while while I was here in Utah um, and um, just kind of just dived into my addiction and was like, you know, stripping was like a way to tap into the party scene and just um, to keep the party going nonstop. And it was at that time when I was at that lowest point where I I got my DUI. And that was sort of almost like a continuation of all this trauma that had just kept going and going and going. I mean, everything that happened um, in, 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 in Sudan and Darfur, which is, you know, this ongoing roller coaster. You go to New York, same kind of thing. You're now starting to abuse more substances. It's just, and, and the trauma's there. It's not being dealt with. Well, it's being medicated, I guess. I, that would be that yeah. would be, and and so that just seems like it just builds up to this moment, and then uh, something must have happened. <laughs> yes, I um, it I think the the it all starts with um, just having I had severely low self esteem from not being able to trust in the self from an, mm-hmm. an early age, and so. That sort of, I felt a lot of self-loathing. I felt like something mm. was really wrong with me, and that just built. And then, no, the shame, the, the shame, all that shame, yeah. the shame yeah. on top of shame. And then I went to um, Sudan, and I mean, I also at the same time, what's happening is I have this shame, and I'm experiencing trauma, but I'm also accelerating in my career. I'm sure. accelerating as a writer, and so you're having success too. Yeah. I'm having yeah. success, and that success is giving me purpose and meaning because I love to write. Writing is my therapy; it's my passion, 
And um, so finding writing while I was there and that I was really good at it, almost as if I had been writing my whole life. It came so easy, uh-huh. so natural. And to be able to get a job with the UN and trained by the UN and flown to Darfur by the UN, and that was helping me to find my personal power. Because right. I had something that nobody could take away from yeah. me, my talent and passion yeah. to write. Um, so that's that. So I'm I'm suffering and yet I'm excel. I'm no, thriving. I, lo- I love this. I love this because it's, it's, it's yeah. Because because the, quite often everyone thinks that the story is like all just about a, a consistent you know downgrade you know into into some terrible low moment. I mean, and 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 that's is true sometimes. But also there's this other almost contrasting experience in life that. You know, quite often, you know, there's there certain things that are happening that actually are powerful and and have some self actualization in them. So, I mean, hearing this, these two things happen at the same time. It it sounds it sounds probably a bit fascinating, or it it it, it maybe in some ways dysfunctional, but it probably propels you to keep going too. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and it it certainly was dysfunctional. I, I think the gift for me um, was because I had had so much success that it was very hard for me um, as this um, tr- as this dysfunction is going on to stop and address it because I mm-hmm. just kept getting more and more success. Mm-hmm. It's like I don't have time to go to therapy. I don't have time to deal <laughs> with my addiction. I just got another contract and I just got another job with the UN and I just got a literary agent. I, nothing's wrong with me. I mean, right. I'm thriving. Yes, you know? So right, right. my <laughs> ego was getting bigger and bigger and I felt invincible and like, and, and if you told me I was, I, I did not believe I had an addiction problem. I mean, it's again, complicated because I knew that I did, but a part of me also was like, whatever, I got this, you know, um, <laughs> but then, um, but then so many hard things happened all at once where I, I lost everything that fed my ego oh. and that was the key for me. I lost everything, the book contract, the, um, the UN job, and then I was stripping, which I didn't have a lot of shame over. I really loved, I loved the rock and roll lifestyle, mm-hmm. but I knew how other people perceived it. And I thought, okay, well, once I've stripped, then nobody's ever going to publish my book again. So to me, it was more about, I'm going to lose my story. And um, so then I met this rock bottom and then I go to jail. Third DUI, it's a felony. Um, my lawyers tell me I'm looking at a year and it was just that place of being the... Uh, Seeing what you had become and not having any cushions around you, no ego, no, no agent telling you you're going to be, you know, a great writer and you're going to publish all these books and no UN people flying you to Fiji to cover a story about indentured servants. You're in jail and you are looking at what you've created and all you see is the mirror back to you is the bars. Mm hmm you know, this prison that you've created mm-hmm. for yourself. And so that was the moment for me where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm really addicted. And if I don't get help, I'm going to die. That's so powerful that you actually were living in the cage you had built. Because I talk about cages in my book a bit that how we build this cage that we live in. We just don't know that we're in it. But you literally found yourself in that cage. I did. And that's, that's so powerful because I, when they put me in the detox tank, I was in there with this other girl that was coming off of um, the hard drugs is what it looked like to me. I don't know exactly what it was. 
Um, and she was just, I remember sitting in the drunk take with her as I was coming off of, you know, alcohol or coming or sobering up and, um, seeing her and thinking what a fucking wreck she is. What an idiot that she's destroyed uh-huh. her life. And I'm still got the alcohol feeling in my system. So I'm still feeling yeah. slightly good. And then, um, then, you know, just having this judgment on her and then going, you know, having to go through what's it called when they, they pull your pants down and they search you for contraband. Oh, and all cavity that. search or yes. something. Yeah, right. Having yeah. to go through all that and then being put behind bars and waking up after the ha- the hangover and after the alcohol's left your body and realizing I am that girl. That yeah. she, so I'm not only in the prison I created, but I'm in a prison with a perfect mirror of myself. Right, right. And just being like, holy, like I am not amazing. I am another bozo on the bus. That it's time to be humbled. Mm-hmm. So, wow. And that's that's when it started. I mean, or at least mm-hmm. when the realization that you needed to to yeah. do something really different than you had been doing up to that point. Yeah. Yes, and, yeah. and it meant, and because I was so success oriented, it meant it meant not focusing on um accelerating it meant focusing within and doing the work within Mm -hmm. and that meant for me getting individual counseling and and working on my trauma and trying to find um to create a safe space within me to nurture my Mm -hmm. voice and my perception because i hadn't been i had um i had no self-esteem and no self-worth outside of um the success and that's a dangerous place to be because it means you're dependent, you're codependent mm-hmm. on getting a book deal and sure. people seeing you. All these external way. sources for that that validate, you know, you, you're being okay. I'm okay when I have all these these things telling me I'm okay, whatever they are, right? Yeah. 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 Wow. So get sober. Uh some lifestyle changes. <laughs> oh yeah. Guessing. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Well, it was really just the biggest lifestyle change was not drinking and doing drugs, and that was painful. That was so hard. That was like I remember thinking of that motto where they say "take it one day at a time," and just mm-hmm. thinking, you know what? Screw your one day at a time. I can barely make it another minute right, right. without feeling physically, emotionally, mm-hmm. just in pain and anguish because I was so physically dependent on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but just, you know, making, knowing also at the same time that if I relapsed, I was probably going to die. I had driven drunk so many times. I had, you know, the criminal justice system had a gun at, gun, a gun at me. Basically, yeah. if yeah. you step out of line, you're going to prison girl. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it really wasn't a choice. I could either live or die. Mm-hmm. And I had, I wanted to fight. So, um, besides not drinking and doing drugs, um, just, I stopped hanging out with the, the people I knew and, um, just went within and started getting counseling and journaling. And I remember my lawyer said, here's the plan. I'm going to push back the sentencing as long as I can so that when you go toward for the, in front of the judge, you'll have some sober time. Mm-hmm. I want you to pay your restitution. I want you to start your counseling. I want you to do everything so that you can go in front of her and say, I have all this to show you right. that I'm serious. And the judge was so compassionate for on me. I got like the let, 
one of the lowest, I don't know, the le- lesser sentences they've ever had for mm-hmm. a felony DUI. Mm. And um, so I, I'm grateful for that. But I know a lot of people don't get that opportunity. So, mm-hmm. And so you, you, what I'm hearing you say is you, you, you took that and did something worthwhile with it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. And and this kind of led you. So I'm assuming that you decided to finish your book at somewhere along the way here and tell the story a little differently than you probably originally based upon I have having read having read it. I <laughs> I know that it wasn't just about the difference between. I mean, even though that does exist in there, um, but it, it more than just the difference between growing up Mormon and and uh, growing up in Islam, you know, in Sudan. So, yes, I um, when I I started working for the USERA, which I had mentioned a while ago, earlier, is um, I realized that uh, which USERA is a recovery community organization in Salt Lake County, but um, I was doing. Um, marketing and events and then all of a sudden it was like oh we need a grant writer and we'd hired these grant writers and I logged in while they were writing the grant into the Google Drive and you know it's a federal grant it's like 60 pages long and you you know and I just I realized from all my training and work as a professional Mm -hmm. journalist that I knew how to write a grant Mm -hmm. and um, that I started writing grants for you Sarah and was able to raise a lot of money through grant writing and get innovative peer support services for them and it years after you know by this time I'm I'm like I think I'm three years in my recovery process and have done a lot of self-work and what I hadn't been doing is writing creatively I'd been journaling but Mm -hmm. I hadn't been writing writing and it it reminded me of my passion and my gift And um, that's when I decided after grant writing and um, winning and and having successes, like, it's time for me to finish my book. And I did. I went through all of my agent's old notes, and I I was just laughing. I'm like, oh, my God, I was such a pain. Please forgive me. And she had passed on by then, but I was like... Um, she had nurtured me and tried to uh-huh. show me, okay, you're a mess, girl, but I still believe in you. And she was so wonderful. And I got to take her notes. And I wrote No Taurus Allowed. Um, what was interesting is I wrote it in a way where I didn't necessarily speak my whole truth mm-hmm. about the church. Because I, I have a lot of Mormon friends. My family's LDS. And mm-hmm. I, I'm like, okay, well, I want to protect them. And I want to write it more so that it's about, um, you know, just sharing some of my experience. Mm-hmm. And how do we make it safe for children mm-hmm. who might have a different way right. than the parent? And how do we make that safe? And using what I learned growing up Mormon and, and living in Africa and, and all that, Um but what was interesting is when the book came out, I actually got a lot of backlash. And <laughs> it pissed me off because I was like, oh, my God. And I was so nice in this story. <laughs> I was so nice. I didn't I didn't really sh- speak in a way that was... Um, I didn't share all my truth because mm-hmm. um, I wanted to play it nice. Mm-hmm. And um, what I've learned with this second book, which I'm working on um, landing an, a literary agent now, it's um, been a process. And uh, as you know, contracts and things mm-hmm. change. And um, But in this, this next one, I'm going to speak my whole truth. Because mm-hmm. if I've already pissed people off and I've played it nice, then... You know, I'm still going to get the black backlash no matter what. 
And I think the lesson for me was always speak your truth. Mm -hmm. I think um, what's happening in Utah, I think what's happening with religious oppression here and having the whole um, gay policy, anti-gay policy that came out in November of 2015 Mm -hmm. where children have to disavow their parents if they're gay. Um, I mean, these types of things are so archaic and so harmful that I'm I'm not playing it nice anymore. Well, there's no family values in that. Um, the the whole stance on um, LGBTQ uh, and the Mormon Church is actually anti-family values. Um, not just because it's discriminatory and, and there's bigotry involved in it, but it's it's about taking fam- it's about separating families or at, at least from the what i keep hearing over and over again shaming and disqualifying people based on sexual orientation um and or gender identity that, that one of the things though that i wondered if if you, you're familiar with the love loud um uh, uh festivals that have gone on the last two years that are I don't think I am, no. This year was at Rice Stadium, and and the year before it was down um, at uh, UC, UVC. It used to be UVC or UVSC or whatever. Yeah. Um, It was down there, and it's by the the guy from uh, Imagine Dragons and... uh, Oh my gosh, I can't, Dan, I can't remember. Anyway, sorry, Dan, I can't remember your last name right now. But they put this, this on and, and, and it's become the, the, Dan's passion to, um, you know, bring awareness to this. And the first year the church backed it and then this year they, they didn't, mm-hmm. they didn't, they didn't do it. Um, which kind of, I had a feeling something was coming and then it did when conference came around again. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to play nice with this one either. And I, I try to talk my way around it. Um, but the discrimination is, um, is really unhealthy and it's, uh, damaging to the development, um, of children, adolescents and, um, um, prejudicial towards, you know, adults that have a different sexual orientation than traditional um, heterosexuality. So, uh, yeah, that's my that's my piece on that anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I appreciate you for saying that because I, I do think so many people were so it's it's hard to know what we can say and what we can't say. Are we, you know, we're offending somebody or um it's just a really hostile um, political climate right now. So, um, but we, oh, you can say whatever you want here, anyway. Okay. Well, I just worry. I mean, I I did. I kind of went through a phase. So after my book came out and I got the backlash, and I will say, my family and I had a falling out and hadn't connected for like or hung out for almost three years after the book came out, hmm. uh, and it was really hard. Um, but I learned. I learned such a valuable lesson, and I'm I'm going to say this because I'm going to speak my truth, even if it hurts people. But I, um, when I had that falling out with my family, I had so much peace. I had never like I had had kind of a codependent relationship on, mm-hmm. with my family, um, you know, just wanting them to like me, even though I wasn't in the church and the external validation and all that. Mm-hmm. And I really f- got to in that time um, nurture the self and know that I had value and and also say I think some of the things you guys are doing is very cult-like and I disagree. Mm-hmm. And I've never had the power to say mm-hmm. that with my family. That's 
you know, where a lot of my fear comes from is speaking out in front of them and being told I'm mentally ill or I'm a liar or I'm this. And that time away from them gave me my voice and gave me the courage to say, you know, it's, it's okay to speak my truth. And so, Hmm. yeah, I, 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 anyways, I'm just rambling now, but you know, I, I, I don't think you're rambling. I, I, because I, you're you're touching upon something that's very core and based upon your experience. Um, I, I wanted to share, though, when you said that, um, you know, I don't want to hurt anyone or, you know, but I'm just going to speak my truth. This idea of making anyone feel any, you know, that that's that's not in our power, really. I mean, this this idea and I know, you know, this Shannon, I'm, I'm so I'm. I don't want to say it to come across in any way derogatory that um, we're not responsible for what other people feel. I mean, they may. I mean, I've said those words. You make me feel to somebody, but I know it's not true. Um, nobody makes me feel anything. It's, that's all based upon my story in my head, my narrative. It's not based upon what anyone else does. And going back to the, something we've talked about a couple times already the, the, today was when families f- feel, um, you know, they get fearful um, when family members, anyone feels feel fearful, um, the, the defensive posture comes up. And that's kind of what I'm hearing with your family. I don't know them and I, I don't want to, you know, say and do anything or say anything bad about them because I, I don't know them. And it's not really the purpose of this, but the, the chances are that you know what how they feel about you and how they feel about your writing a book about your experience that's about them that's not about you you if if you're if you're speaking and living your truth that's all that's all any of us need to do that's all i need to do how how my family would react to it is is up to them and so especially when it comes to theology and and and, and, and politics too, but when it comes to theology, um, we just got to own what our truth is, and that's you know that's kind of what seems to be the basis of your story, which I think is why it's inspirational so much. Oh, thank you. Well, I love that you just touched on um, that. I this that we cannot we're not responsible for the way other people feel because hmm. that is that is another key to personal power. If we know that we control the way we feel, that mm-hmm. we are responsible for the way we feel and perceive mm-hmm. and think. Um, and that was a lot of my healing because I had so much anger on my against or towards my family mm-hmm. and the church. Um, and I didn't realize that I was choosing that perception and that anger and, and, and all of that. And once I started to understand that and learn that, that's when I started to become more whole and free and empowered in my journey. And, um, yes, they're not responsible for how I feel and I'm not responsible for how they feel. And, um, it's a beautiful space, but it is hard to remember that. Absolutely. So slowly, <laughs> slowly be kind to yourself. Well, especially with family, you know, and that, that there, there's uh, growing up the youngest. Okay. I, I was the youngest of five. Um, and there were quite a number of years difference between my, my siblings. My oldest, the oldest is my sister and she's still, she's, um, 
supposedly I say this supposedly. I'm sorry, Susan. I, you're, you may listen to this. Um, she raised me as being the, the fifth, and my mom had already raised you know for other children. She kind of I guess handed me off at some point um, until maybe I was eight or eight or nine when I then you know this everyone kind of moved away and it was just me and my mom. But this this idea um, of kind of carrying on the the sins of our families or sins of our parents. I mean, it's pretty normal that the indoctrination and we're, that we go through um, as children growing up within a family system that we're going to take on a certain uh, amount of the the problems within the family, and you know that we have a way to express that. Gosh, if 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 we can find a way to do that. <clears throat> and it's in a, in a way that can bring us, you know, a sense of freedom and empowerment in life. Yeah, I don't think I don't really. That, none, none of the other stuff really matters in the long run. The the idea that feelings can get hurt. I mean, uh, it, it. I mean, when I read when I read your book, I never felt that there was anything that you were saying that was derogatory or intentionally to try to hurt somebody it did feel like you were t- you were speaking from your voice of your experience and how it felt for you to go through those things that was that was pretty clear or very clear so n- knowing that n- knowing that in in my life that uh and, and growing up in a in a household that um I, I had an abusive brother and and he had some he had plenty of issues um, but knowing that they weren't about me, they were they were his problem. I, it took me, of course, in life, it took me a while to figure that out. And I carried those around for a long time, thinking that I was the victim of him for a really long time. I got a lot of mileage out of that. But the truth of the matter is, it wasn't, it wasn't about me. And uh, not that, I mean, yes, I didn't figure this out till my late 30s, early 40s. But at least I figured it out that everything that he did has, wasn't about me in the first place. It was about him and what he was going through. And when I figured that out, I was able to let go of all the, the, that story and rewrite that narrative, which was a powerful experience. So anyway, that's, that's a little bit of my well, I love my story. I love that. I, it is about we behave because it's about us. Yeah. You know, yeah. it isn't um, my mom made me do this or, or whatever it may be. And, um, <laughs> or the devil. <laughs> or the devil, exactly. But um, I think a, a lesson I learned in that was that um, one of the things I do regret about my first book was that I did mention some things about my parents' story maybe growing up or mm. um, what had gone in their household to show like repeating patterns mm-hmm. and how they carried on if we, we weren't, if we're not living consciously. So any traumatic event that you mm-hmm. may have experienced, you might pass that on down to your children because you suppress it and you suppress the emotions right. and then you carry it out in, in, in your, in your life. And so that was my intention in bringing that up. But I do think that I learned that there it wasn't my right to maybe say some of those things, and I'm definitely making those corrections in the next um, the next go round. And then I hope to like take you know this book off the shelf and like take some of those things out out of respect for their privacy and to honor them because I have those regrets and mm-hmm. and it is not something that um, you know I'm I I I just wish I ha- I I knew better. Mm-hmm. But at the same time it's like, you know, with your upbringing and and the people in your life, 
they may have done things that you're like, wow, but at the moment they were doing the best they could. And exactly. Let's, let's let it go and exactly. give them give them that yeah. because we don't know what our parents experienced. Mm-hmm. The tra- the way that children were raised back then is so much different now. They didn't have Oprah on the TV advocating for <laughs> child rights, and they didn't have the internet and and all these holistic paths and metho- methods. They they really had a much harder time, yeah. and they probably experienced a much more trauma than we could imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a really good point, too. I do. I'm also maybe, maybe look, feel a little different about, you know, air, airing the laundry, um, only because I think by, by bringing some of those things into the light um, does allow the opportunity for healing. Not that everyone will take it up, but... Uh, and I'll say this. I mean, I learned this through recovery. Okay. Even though my, my recovery is different than yours or whatever, whatever that, that means. Um, but I, I learned that, um, it's okay to go through life and, and, and have that all out and not have any secrets and not have any shadows left that, that are a question. It's not that I, I go around and, and talk about it all the time and I, I, I make it, you know, re- repeat those old stories anymore. But that, you know, to not have any secrets is actually freeing. And I, 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 I do maybe hear what you're saying that, but I don't need to necessarily, you know, air other people's secrets necessarily. And so I, there's probably a fine line in that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really hard. And, and I'm not sure, to be honest. I just know the reaction that I got. And, you know, people pointed out, well, what if I wrote a memoir and I you were in your addiction and I had mentioned that you were an addict? Well, I would have been like pissed, right? Mm-hmm. When I was in active addiction, it's like, that's not your right to out me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's but at the same time, how do I tell my story of addiction recovery mm-hmm. without talking about the trauma I experienced? I, I don't think you can. It's do it without impossible it. Yeah. if you want to tell a true story. Mm-hmm. And um, the other side of that is that a lot of um, people who so Martha Beck, who her father was a, a, hist- a Mormon historian, um, huge in the church. I can't remember his name, but she wrote Leaving the Saints. And then there's a mm-hmm. new book, Educated Out by Tara Westbrook or something like that. And there, it's very common that when uh, children speak out about growing up at Mormon and mm-hmm. then disagreeing with certain things, their family just goes after them, calls them mentally ill sure. and a liar and just yeah. try to discredit De- demonizes, them. Demonizes them. So then it also can take away from the story if, if you have that going on. So I'm trying to walk a fine sure. line where... I'm trying to make it mostly about me, um, but in the second one, but um, we shall see, right? Yeah, we shall see. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on, if that's okay. Yeah. Because I just want to ask you some, some yeah. questions that, that may be less about your story, but in some ways more about your life now, and, and the, if that's okay. Um, uh, one of the things I ask is, you know, what what brings you joy in life? What How do you find joy and in, in contentment? What where do you find that nowadays? Um, well, an easy answer is I um, love to get up and dance. 
So I just, I have, I love animals. I have two reptiles. Um, they bring me incredible joy. I have a free roam rabbit that eats the house and two cats. <laughs> Can you explain what a free roam rabbit is? Because I, I, I bet it, there are a few of our listeners that probably haven't heard that term before. Sure. Well, most people think that rabbits, um, well, because they eat wood, so they'll eat your baseboards and they'll eat your <laughs> cords, um, are animals that should be belong in cages right. if you're going to make them pets. But they're actually just like dogs and cats so they should be free roam it should actually be a normal term but i'm not going to go on that <laughs> right no, I, but i had rescued a rabbit from a friend um that was not caring for it and had kept it in a cage and it was sitting in its own feces and i'm like please let me take this i'll take you to the home humane society and we'll get you a cat and so she got a cat and i took her rabbit and i'm like Googling and apparently a free roam rabbit, you can cover your cords and train them to just live in your house like a cat and dog. They can be litter box trained. Um, And because he, that rabbit grew up um, in a cage, a tiny cage where he couldn't hop around at all. He just has so much joy every morning. He wakes up, bounces on the bed and just (laughs) bouncing around the house. Like get up everybody. It's morning time. (laughs) And that brings me a lot of joy. I'm like, I love you. And so I will turn on the music in the morning and I will usually dance and I dance around my animals and my rabbit. They call it a binky when they hop up and down and like give a really big hop. Um, and that's a rabbit's expression of joy. Wow. And when I'm dancing, I notice my rabbit will binky along with me. And it's just a wonderful thing. So that's what brings me joy today. And dancing is fascinating. Uh, all all animals do dance, I guess, uh, on some level. I, I, I've I've been told this before. I don't know if it's true or not. It could, it could not be, but I want to. In my own way of thinking, I want to believe it. So. Well, yeah, I've seen birds. You know, they move back and forth, yeah. and yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe. That's yeah, well, so I've cool. seen elephants, and I've seen uh, I've seen you know different felines, tigers, and different different cats and things like that. I've seen them move and 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 do that kind of stuff. So, um, okay, uh, how do you? Uh, how do you connect? I call it the Zen zone. That the Zen being a little bit different, but our, our Zen place within us. Um, you know, how do, how do you connect with that? How do you find that that way to 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 connect to your source within you? I I listen to a lot of um, meditation, guided meditation, and um, podcasts by people that I look up to. That to me is a Zen zone when I'm listening to to people that are on the leading edge of thought and emotion and um, definitely through writing writing for me mm-hmm. is um, I'm not sure what's going to happen with the second book uh, it's taken quite a while for me to get the right contract and but I for me I remind myself it isn't about the end result it's about the growth I get when I am sitting down at my laptop and tapping into my source to help me tell a compelling story in the most honest and inspiring way that I can um, because I, I do feel that I'm being guided by by source mm-hmm. energy to 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 share my story in a way that is helpful to others okay okay um, I, I wonder too um, with your experiences uh, from traveling if if and I think you said something about that. You love traveling, and I wonder if that's a way to, or maybe out through nature or something, that you also connect to that that place. Yeah, I I traveled so much, and um, 
even up, you know, I, I do a lot of work for the recovery community and I had a client in Las Vegas and I got to kind of go there once or twice a month and doing it just, I kind of got taxed out by it because I've been alone for a long time. I've been Uh single for a long time. So I'm actually in a new phase of my life where I don't, I, I've seen so much and I've had the privilege of being out in the world so much Mm -hmm. that, um, I'm trying now to find joy wherever I'm at. That it's not about going to other places to to grow. I'm just trying to uh, be nurtured by my current surroundings. Do you like to get out into nature? Do you like to immerse yourself in nature at all? I do, yes. Just not in the wintertime. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like always so cold. So I will be holed up in my house by the fireplace this winter. Yes. But yeah. do you? Are you a huge... I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I'm a, I was, I mean, I was a, a, you know, a beach bum for a long time. Um, but now I've kind of turned into a desert rat a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I love the mountains too, but there's something about the desert. Um, I mean, I grew up on the ocean or the Long Island Sound anyway. Um, but I learned to love the desert and I can, I, I, I can get immersed into it and just lose myself there. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's one of, it's one of my favorite places to be. Um, we probably talked about this throughout the the podcast today, but, um, you know, what are you, what are your thoughts about God, the universe, faith, uh, you know, what, how, yeah. how does that sit now for you with this with uh, this whole uh, backstory that we heard today? I will say uh, what I what I believe or or am open to is just this idea that we are the creators of our own reality. Yes. Yeah. Um, and 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 there there's so much. It, it, life doesn't have to be so hard. I think. Um, people believe that we're here to be tested and that we have to go through the struggle and the struggle is real and that's when we prove our worth. And my belief is that we are already worthy and we can create a wonderful and amazing experience for ourselves every single day by tapping into um, satisfaction or gratitude, the idea of, just driving over here, I'm like, today is such a satisfying day. I freaking love my shirt. I'm wearing a Wonder Woman shirt. <laughs> I love awesome. my jacket. I had a wonderful sleep last night. All these things bring me satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And just trying to trying to um, open myself up to satisfaction yeah. and joy. That's what... I don't, I don't want to say what I don't believe in, whether it's God mm, or higher sure. power. What works for me every day uh, is... Um, being joyful. Yeah. 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 I, I appreciate you bringing up the idea that a lot of people do think this is like a testing zone. Like, you know, life on earth is about being tested. And, and, and I have a, a simple way that I, I talk to myself about that is that, yeah, I, today I'm being tested to see if I can pull my head out of my ass, you know, for at least most of the day. It, it doesn't always happen, but that's sort of, <laughs> if I think anything's being tested, it's about me and how, you know, if I'm going to, you know, live a life um, of, of purpose and connection and uh, and humility and gratitude, or if I'm going to get you know wrapped up in my own bullshit for a while and and kind of forget and for, and forget that. So I've correlated to getting my head out of my ass. But anyway, um, okay, moving moving on. Then uh, I did tell you I was going to ask you this question about music and and uh, I. 
this idea that uh, there are a couple songs, one or two, that, that may represent you, you feel um, your life in some way or your journey or just have, you know, personal meaning, inspirational to you? Yeah, probably the first one that comes to mind is um, Britney Spears' Oops, I Did It Again. <laughs> <laughs> But, oh, um, you are awesome! No, but for real, because um, I'm the same. Just trying to remember to be humble and get you know get out of your own. Mind. But um, I mean, I thought about your question, and I would not. I don't have any like deep songs that I'm like this. The song that really feels true to me is probably "Living on the Edge" by Aerosmith, because I have always lived a wild and adventurous life. And I want to live on the edge. I want to live outside the box. I want to um, push people to, to see and believe and to follow their truth, no matter how crazy it looks. So living on the edge, for sure. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Um, all right. I think we'll, uh, we'll kind of bring it to a close here. Um, thank you so much, Shannon. I really appreciate you taking the time today to come in and share your story a vast you know, story of your experience in life and your travels and your ups and downs. And it feels kind of like there's there's more to come. So maybe maybe when you get your book out, maybe you come back and talk about that if you if you feel like it. I would okay. love to. Thank you for okay. having me and for all the work you do to kind of help people share their stories and to to add to the conversation yeah. and help people find common ground. So thank you so much. Thank you. All right, uh, just a reminder, next week we will have uh, McKaylee Mathis on, um, tell, talking about her life and her story, and then the following week is the uh, Bozo Roundtable with uh, a few of the, oh gosh, I think I was going to jokingly say the, pro, the pros from Dover uh, will be on, and um, hope you guys all have a great Thanksgiving weekend, um, focusing on gratitude and thankfulness. And uh, it's a moment to be humble. We'll go out as we usually do with little Joan Osborne. Have a great week. Thanks. Like and would you want to see if see